we've been going through Mark's gospel. Uh, we began in Christmas of last year. We began with Mark 1.1 1, 1, uh, with our Christmas services last year with the plan of us going through this, this Mark's gospel, which we're about halfway through right now, all the way up until Easter of next year. And so we've had intermissions throughout the year. We did our Take Heart series. We did our uh, uh, series on justice over the course of the summer, but Mark has been the consistent theme. Uh, next week, we're going to be shifting to another one of those little intermission breaks in Mark's gospel as we move into what could be is, is referred to as an Advent series. It's a Christmas, the season leading up to Christmas series. The whole point of an Advent season of, of this time of anticipation and setting our eyes towards Christmas is to develop a sense of longing and expectation and hope for Jesus, like was experienced by Israel for all of those generations. And so for this series, like I said, we're gonna be taking a break from Mark and we're gonna be spending some time with the prophet Isaiah in a series that we're calling Christmas in Exile. For Christmas in Exile, we're gonna be hearing from, like I said, Isaiah, who was, as we've seen, Mark's favorite prophet, sitting with him in his expectation and longing for the arrival of the Messiah waiting for that first Christmas, waiting for the, the, the advent, the birth of Jesus. And as we do so, not only looking forward to remember the work of God in the incarnation and birth of Jesus, but even more so um, allowing Christmas to be a time for us to join Isaiah, looking forward to the arrival of Jesus uh, and his return when he makes all things right. And so Christmas in exile is, is it connects to Mark because Mark loves exile. It connects to the exile theme that we've been uh, going over <laughs> over this past year, whether it was uh, back in first Peter a year ago or our anniversary service back in October. And so we're gonna spend a little more time on exile as we look at Isaiah and think about Christmas. And so after we go through that, we'll take a week off the last Sunday of the year. And then back into 2021, we're going to kick up with three more weeks in discovering Jesus in this section of Mark before we then kick off the final series in the gospel of Mark, what we're calling enthroning Jesus, which will take us from January all the way to Easter. And so I'm really excited for uh, us to continue Mark's gospel, but there's that kind of a, a setting up where we're going, Isaiah next week, and then back into Mark at the beginning of the year. I'm really, really excited uh, to, to kind of make this change and, and for us to spend some time on that. But back to Mark. Today, he gives an introduction to the text. He sets up kind of what he's thinking about. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna pray right now. Notes are there in the chat. And then we're gonna get right into Mark chapter nine. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for this church. Uh, we thank you for, God, in the midst of this year that we continue to find these little evidences of the fact that you are good and you are with us. My prayer is that you might give us eyes to see those things. Father, today as we hear these words of Jesus, may we receive from him what it means to be his followers and his disciples. God, it is, um, it is this chapter um, it is one that I, I so readily see as um, something that so many of us, um, regardless of whether or not we identify as a Christian, have just, we, we kind of ignore, we've set to the side. In particularly dangerous is within the church today. And so my prayer is that we might set that aside, that we might open our hearts to truly hear from your word where it might want to do some work that maybe we would be uh, reticent to, to receive. So speak to us today and we pray, amen. So today we're looking at Mark chapter nine. We're gonna begin in verse 30 to 32. Let's read this together. And, uh, and then we'll, we'll kind of we'll meditate and think on this a little bit. 
Mark 9, verse 30. They went on from there and they passed through Galilee. And Jesus didn't want anyone to know they'd been passing through Galilee for he was spending some time teaching his disciples. As he was teaching them, he was saying things to them like, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But his disciples did not understand the saying and were quite afraid to ask. Now, if you've been paying attention you have a sense of deja vu in what we've just read. Uh, you get a gold star because this is very similar to what we read just a couple of weeks ago, back in chapter eight, verse 31, Jesus began to teach them that the son of man suffer many things, rejected by the elders, killed after three days, rise again. It's almost like Jesus is saying the same thing. He did it there. He does it here. He's actually going to do it. This is the second or third times. Uh, next year, we're going to find in the back half of chapter 10, Jesus says the same thing. The son of man is going to be delivered over to the priests and scribes, condemned to death, delivered to the Gentiles, mocked and spit, killed on, but will rise ultimately. Three times in this little section, Jesus and Mark, using Jesus' words, repeats himself over and over again. So the question is, why the repetition? Why the repetition of Jesus prophesying his death, his betrayal, his suffering, his humiliation, Ultimately, his resurrection, yes, but in the midst of it, this descent into death, why the repetition? Well, a couple of reasons. The first is that Jesus and Mark, through retelling this here, is trying to help us to continue that work of discovering Jesus, specifically discovering the humble victory of King Jesus, who, who he identifies himself here as this son of man. That, that as we read over this, again, these three times in these couple of chapters, but right here at the beginning of um, our text today, in the middle of chapter nine, is we're finding Jesus displaying what it means for him to be king, what it means for him to be Christ, that is the Messiah, the son of man, is that his power is in his powerlessness. His enthronement is his execution. This is why we're calling our, our last chunk next year, the, the enthronement of Jesus or enthroning Jesus. It's all about his execution. You see, for many of us, we read over these words of Jesus here and he's talking about how he's gonna die and suffer and he's gonna, you know, res and, and we kind of just like read over that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's Jesus stuff, right? That's what Jesus does. It makes total sense. Even maybe if you don't identify as a Christian or you're, if your neighbor, you ask him, what did Jesus do? or at least what does the Bible say that Jesus did, is this would probably be the summary of most people. Oh, he died on a cross and he got up again, right? We culturally assume this. And yet for these first disciples that are with Jesus, this is strange territory. No wonder, as it says in verse 32, they did not understand it. See, the disciples in our assumptions, and that's the problem with us just becoming kind of, you know, okay or just aware of the cross and resurrection. Without it, catching the, the stark reality of it, the waking us up and what is going on here of it. As if we receive the cross and the death of Jesus for what it really is, is it takes our assumptions of power and authority and privilege and victory. And by them being Jesus's way of having victory, upend all of our assumptions about how power works in the world. In a world where human, human assertion comes in the name of pride and having power, gaining power, using power, control and privilege and keeping privilege. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus then comes onto the scene and shows that the true way is one of humiliation and humility, one of service and one of even suffering. 
And so by this repeated two out of three times now, it keeps happening. Mark is showing us through Jesus' teachings here, we need to be aware and have our assumptions of power and control and victory challenged and upended regularly as we continue to discover the humiliation, the humility, the suffering of Jesus. But that's not the only thing that he's doing. The second thing that's happening here, and this is why I said Mark gives us his own introduction, is in giving us this, Mark is uh, using Jesus's sayings here uh, as a, a kickstart, a way to introduce a greater discovery of what it means to be the people of Jesus. To understand that what happens right here, the son of man delivered into the hands of men, they will kill him. And when he's killed three days, he will rise. That this work of Jesus not only saves a community, it shapes a community. And what I mean by that is, again, if you go back to the two out of three times, every single time Jesus says something about the son of man is going to suffer. He repeats this prophecy right after it. Every single time there is a conversation with his disciples of how they don't see not only what this means for Jesus, what this means to be his followers. Back in chapter eight, verse 31, Jesus says this, I've got to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. And immediately, what does Peter do? Peter rebukes him. And so Jesus challenges Peter, deals with Peter, and then talks about what it means to be my disciple. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me. In Mark chapter 10, where we're going to be at the beginning, what is it? It's James and John, right after Jesus says, the son of man is going to suffer and be rejected and died. It turns into James and John having a conversation about who is greatest. And it's exactly what we're going to find today. So the idea is that whenever Jesus talks about his cross, right behind it is how this has immediate implications to you and your life and who you are. Once again, the cross that saves us is the cross that shapes us. The humility of Jesus, his death on the cross shapes a community of humility. And in fact, you could go so far as to say a community that is not shaped in the direction of humility has at best a misunderstanding of the humility of Jesus, if not an outright rejection of it. And so today, what we're going to find is Jesus is dead set, not only on his mission of humility, his cross and his death so that he might rise again. He is dead set on developing his disciples into you and me as well, into a community of humility. And so he's going to upend and turn over any pride, any arrogance, any ambition, which endangers that vision. That is where we're going. So you don't believe me. Let's keep going in Mark 9, verse 33. So Jesus is talking about this. The disciples don't understand. And so along the way, they come to the city of Capernaum. And so they go into a house and while they're there at the house, likely over dinner, Jesus asked them, what were you guys discussing back on the road? But all the disciples fell silent. And they kind of look around, they're looking at each other and you know, sniffling noses and kind of looking at Jesus. Nobody wants to say it. Why? Why were they silent? For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Do you immediately notice the stark contrast of what we just read about what Jesus was saying on the road is his suffering, his humility, his giving his life for the ransom for many. He's talking all about his humility. He's going, this is what I've come to do. And it's, they're not even listening to Jesus because they're arguing over who is greatest. We find the contrast between the self-giving humility of Jesus and the self-aggrandizing pride of his disciples. 
finding themselves over this argument of who is greatest, which likely wasn't them going, I'm greatest. No, I'm greatest. And Peter, no, me and Judas, you know, no, they're not just arguing over who's the best. They're arguing over what positions of privilege are going to be given to each one when Jesus, again, their vision of a political ruling Messiah, who's going to get to sit where? We see this again in Mark 10, where two of the disciples still won't let this up. And they're arguing over who gets to sit at Jesus's right and left in his royal palace. Who gets the really, really nice jobs? So they're arguing over, well, I should have this one. And, and no, you, well, I, I technically deserve it because I'm, you know, I'm born of this tribe or whatever. And I, I was the first one that Jesus called, right? Uh, Matthew, you know, I should, I should be the one that's, you know, holding over all the money, right? There's all of this debate of who gets to have what position. And so they're arguing over this with one another. And as much as we may argue this with one another, more often than not, the argument about who is greatest happens for us, not with one another, but with ourselves. Like this is shower thoughts 101 is when you're in the shower and you're sitting there going, you know, that you weren't praised for what happened. You, you putting in the extra hours at work, but he was praised because, you know, he didn't take a nap through lunch yesterday. And so now, you know, you're arguing over the who is greatest, the desire to be honored. Man, if people would see the work that I'm putting in here, if they would praise me, you know, the book deal or whatever, if I was able to get up to this level within the corporate ladder, I deserve that. She doesn't, my current boss, somebody needs to nix her because I deserve, we, we go through this all of the time. We serve and we give ourselves, we work for the sake of recognition. See, all of this comes out of a God-given desire, a good desire to matter, to belong. But often it gets twisted into this compulsive need for glory, for power, for position. What we could call this is an ambition for position within the disciples. And this happens out in the world. You've seen it within your coworkers. Likely you've seen it within yourself. We live in Los Angeles. Where more do we find a culture of a ambition for position that's often going on? A desire for prominence, a desire for opportunity, a desire to be seen, a desire to be something, to make something of ourselves, this ambition for position. It's out in the world. The problem, the issue at hand here is what happens when that ambition and pride infects a community of Jesus's disciples, whether the 12 here or the church. What happens when, as the apostle Paul puts it, that we see godliness as a means for gain. When we see following Jesus as, as an avenue for our ambition, for our desire for position and power and privilege within the community. What we find is that it breeds, like we see here, arguments, or again, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, uh, envy and dissensions and constant, always ongoing friction within the community. When we're all trying to find who fits where, it leads to friction and argument. This happens in a local level with arguments and tiffs and bitterness and even the clicky, like you're over there, I don't hang out with them anymore because they did it. And it all comes to who is the greatest. But this happens not just on a local level within churches, but at a political level within the, I mean, this is like the American church right now. It's here you have this desire of what does it mean to be greatest? And instead of us arguing with ourselves over who's going to have it, that the American evangelical church has largely fought for a cultural or political power, a, a, a seat of power within culture so that we might control and be prominent. And then Jesus won. And the way that Jesus won only comes when we have all of the political power. 
The same is true, this ambition of position with uh, celebrity pastors, left, right, and center. I always talk about them and I feel so bad, but I actually don't. Is the, uh, is, is this happens once again with pastors who see the work of the church, the work of ministry as an avenue for, and we always make a joke about preachers and sneakers. That is the, that is the easy, explicit one. Is, is, you know, jet planes and expensive shoes. The one that is far more devious is the one which needs the position, which needs the church, which needs all of the people uh, praising me for my Jesus work for the sake of the glory and the power and control and privilege that I want. It is why so many celebrity pastors over the past year, once the crowd's been taken away because of COVID-19, have turned to other avenues of finding some sense of transcendence, whether that's drugs or sex or rock and roll, they looking for something. This is what happens with celebrity pastors. But the same, it's the same ambition for position across the board within the American church. The little tiffs that we have within the church the local church working within a, a, a city trying to have some kind of power, the evangelical church at large or celebrity pastors, it is all ambition for position. And like I'm saying here, this is the unchallenged pet sin of American Christianity. Throughout Christian history, ambition by and large, not just by Christians in the whole world, ambition was a vice. Ambition was a, a vice counter to contentment. Ambition was a bad thing. And now like you go and you have, you put it on your resume, you know, what are some of your strengths? I'm ambitious. And, and again, there, there should be some level of like not being lazy, right? We're not talking about that nobody sits around. We are saying an inability to be content with who we are in the community that we're in and working within specific ways is given to us by God and the need to be praised, the need to have honor, the need to be seen, that this moves into the virtue and it's the largely undealt with sin within American Christianity. And we have baptized ambition in the name of Jesus. And it's, what's it's doing? It's doing the exact same thing that it's doing with the disciples here. An argument, constant friction. And so Jesus sees this happening here, this argument. And so if this continues in them and in us as a community, it's going to dissolve the group. So what's Jesus's response? Verse 35. So Jesus sits down and calls the 12. He takes the posture of a teacher. He sits down and he says, if anyone would be first, it's links back to who's going to be the greatest. So if anyone's going to be first, anyone's going to be the greatest, you know who it is? They must be last of all and a servant of all. To drive the point home, he took a child and he put him in the midst of them in front of all the 12. And he takes the child in his arms. If he's teaching, sitting down, the idea is Jesus takes this little, this little kid in his lap. And he says to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. The idea being there of, of God, the father. So Jesus sets up another one of his paradoxes of discipleship. Back in chapter eight, it was the one who wants to save their life will lose it. And the one who willingly loses their life will save it. Here, the second discipleship paradox is that the first will be last. He gives this example of who that sort of service to will be. And it's this child. Now, this is not simply saying that, you know, um, that the church should prioritize our care for the children, though that is true and, and can be brought from this. 
But more than this is Jesus is bringing at this time, no romanticized view of children like we have within our world. Children at that time did not have power, did not have status. They had few rights within society. They were not romanticized. They were seen as kind of what we have to deal with until this little thing gets it together and becomes someone who can help on the farm or help with the family business. And so by taking this child, it is, Jesus is holding up more than just this child as the one that they shall serve. Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to be a servant of, it's the word for waiter, a waiter. I'm calling you to wait on all lives, all people. So the one who's greatest is the one who serves and welcomes and receives all. And in particular, ergo the child, those who are not served, those who are not welcomed, those who are not received. So Jesus is, is setting his disciples here and going, you guys want to be great. It's not just that I'm calling you guys to serve one another or to care and receive one another. I'm saying the one that is never cared for, the one that is rarely received, the one who has no rights, no status and no power, that's who you are to care for and serve. And Jesus isn't preaching anything that he hasn't, we haven't seen him practicing over the past year in Mark's gospel. Who has he been serving and receiving and welcoming? It's the Gentiles and the poor and the oppressed and the unclean. Back to the story of justice back in the summer. Who is, it's the quartet of the vulnerable. This child is a symbol of the poor, the immigrant, the widow, and the orphan. We've talked in the story of justice about the quartet of the vulnerable today. Who are those who are not served, are not welcomed, are not received within our world? And what does it mean for me to go after, to serve, care for, value, welcome them? Unless we think that Jesus is handing down some kind of weird form of paternalism where we're up here and we're, we're helping everybody up, you know, as much as we can. That's not the language Jesus uses here. He's not talking about handouts. He's not talking about, of, of kind of, oh, come on, we'll help you guys along. It's a language of you going underneath them, servant. And even more than that, it's language of relationship, receive, welcome. It's rooted in the idea of hospitality, of friendship. Like I said, relationship. Jesus is here turning over the entire social structure. The ones who are served are the ones at the top of the, the thing. And the people that are the ones that are, or reverse that, the ones who are at the top of the ladder, not the ones being served, but the ones serving. And so Jesus is turning over everything right here. Uh, Dr. Alberto Domingo Caminucci, he's a Spanish-Japanese Bible scholar, and he's, I, he's incredible. But he says this, Jesus's commandment, of service here, what, we're, what we've just read, is not some gentle call to benevolence and kindness toward fellow human beings. So Jesus is not saying, hey guys, we're all gonna be nice now. Like that's my community is all about peace and love and happiness. And like we care for the poor. And that's not what he's saying. It is a call to constitute a subversive community that proves possible ways of exercising authority other than dominion by the strongest. We could just pray right here and end it. Jesus is bringing out a new sort of community. This, he's not starting a, a nonprofit for the poor. He is saying in my community, my people is a upside down thing. It, it's completely unlike it. He's not just correcting pride. Come on guys, let's work together. Everybody's got a, a really pa a good spot within the community. We all need a teamwork makes the dream work. He turns their whole understanding, the whole framework upside down, or you could argue right side up. He says something so strong. He says, you want to receive me? 
You want to receive God, the father, receive the child, receive the powerless, the statusless, the vulnerable, the forgotten, and the set aside of society. If you're like me and you grew up uh, going to like summer youth camp, I remember every single summer, you know, and like the, it was normally the second to last night uh, if you were Pentecostal, because the, the last night was the one where like the Holy Spirit came and everybody went crazy. But the second to last night was the one where everybody became a Christian. And so what would happen is, you know, you have some preacher with, you know, he's got like frosted tips or whatever, and he's making references to Napoleon Dynamite. And, and at the end of the sermon, he then kind of gives this rousing kind of like pray, call to receive Jesus into your heart. And like every single summer I'm there like, yes, like do it again, right? What's so prominent here is I, I, I noticed this is, is that what Jesus says is like, okay, yes, go to the summer camp, receive me into your heart, well and good. But look what he says, those who you want to really receive me, you want to really receive the, the one who sent me the father, you want to really welcome me into your heart, you know, like the youth pastor was talking about, receive the vulnerable with your hands. You want to serve me? You want to be my people? You want to be a part of my community? Serve the least of these. Put your concern on the quartet of the vulnerable. Quit arguing and nitpicking with each other about who gets to be on the top and stop, start serving those around. That's how you become the sort of human who's great. And so again, the community of humility that is the church is not only saved by Jesus, but shaped by Jesus. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says of himself that I came not to be served, but to serve. And so of course, this is exactly what he would call us to be if we are a people shaped by him. But John needs to put his foot in his mouth. Look at me in verse 38. So Jesus is in the middle of talking about this. This is so great. Like we just had all of this pride stuff and Jesus is setting up the humility and he's just, he's driving this home. You got the little kid on his lap and John interrupts Jesus. You, you want to, that's the big mistake. Never do that. But what does John say? John said to him, uh, rabbi teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So John is kind of like, it's like this like self-congratulatory, like, yeah, Jesus, we serve you. John interrupts Jesus and he just digs himself into a deeper hole, like showing his pride and his arrogance. He tries to boast and it immediately backfires. He, he, in effect, John says to Jesus, master, we saw someone using your power to free another of the hellish tyranny of Satan. So he handed him a cease and desist. Why is John doing this? Why did the disciples do this? Notice at the end of verse 38, if you're not paying attention, you'll miss it, but it's huge. Why? Because he was not following Jesus? No, it's us. You see, here we find the ambition for positions, stepsister, the pride of tribe, and she's ugly, right? It is us versus them. The ambition for position, what ends up happening is the me, me, me ends up turning into this tribal we, we, we over and against you. Where we're then, it's the same ambition of position, but now it's happening within a group, within a tribe. And so what's happening here with John is seeing this exorcist who's not part of the 12, they hand him a cease and desist, not because he's not doing this powerful thing in the name of Jesus, but because he's not part of our group. It's, it's not ironic that, you know, last week with Pastor Isaac, what, in the text, what was the one thing the disciples couldn't do? What was the thing, the whole reason Jesus got so frustrated with them? Do you remember? Anybody, in, the four of you in here, does anybody remember? What were the disciples doing? Jesus came down the hill, what was the one thing that they couldn't do? Cast out a demon, right? 
So look at this. Right after this whole story where the demons can't cast out a demon, they're handing out cease and desist to people. It's, it's jealousy. They're being fueled by this. This guy can do the thing that we can't, but he's not part of our crowd. So, you know, we told him to stop. And so this pride of tribe, it's again, the ambition for position that just marries with a, a we and us versus them. Um, you know, I just, I literally just have happens in world, semicolon, politics. Like, and, and this is what is happening in this moment is, is a tribalism that continues to develop in which we accept anybody who comes in the name of the donkey and reject anybody who even looks slightly like an elephant. And then we don't cross boundary lines. I could never be a friend with someone who voted for or even leaned in the direction of that sort of, I could never talk to someone, give them the time of day. The tribalism is alive and well. And it's ripping apart the fragment of being able to have actual conversations with folks. And some of you may disagree with me and think that, well, what if the, you've got, yeah, you've got extremists on all sides. That's not where most people are. So whatever, um, you can ask about it in the Q&A today. So the thing though, is that Jesus isn't dealing with politics. He's not dealing with how it works out there. He's dealing with it within the community. That's the focus, remember? And so again, this happens not just in politics, but in the local church, when we have these, uh, the language of these, these cliques, many tribes that develop within the church, fueled by pride of who's in, and then a jealousy that begins to develop with who's out. And then you have the whole church becomes these silos of little cliques of we're over here and this is our group and anybody, there is a, and it's not even this, you know, we're handing out cease and desist to people that are hanging out with people across lines, but there is an invitation and an exclusion. There is a sense of belonging within one and the exclusion of the other. And the problem is, is that that belongs within the church as a whole and not with you and your 10 friends. I mean, I've seen whole churches planted out of this cliquish nonsense where churches get fragmented because these two party lines continue or three or four, all these little clique groups that grow and grow and grow and nobody crosses the boundary lines. And then what ends up happening is they just split off into their own churches. The unity they were meant to have rips the whole thing apart in its absence. But even more than that, at a larger level, I've seen this among churches uh, throughout my years and, and, you know, 10 years in a, in a Pentecostal mega church. I mean, to the credit of the leaders, this was not something that they were driving for, but I just saw this within, you know, this giant big mega church everybody that was a part of this thing. It was just like, we are God's chosen, like, you know, people. And, the, and you're like, oh, you know, you meet somebody and you go, what church do you go to? Or, you know, we're at, you know, you know, something, something Baptist church. And you're kind of like, oh, you know. You know, it's like, yeah, you're a Christian. It's like, well, you're not with us, right? It's the, it's the same exact thing here. I uh, spent 10 years, the next 10 years, uh, part of a couple of churches in this uh, really kind of big, prominent, sexy, uh, uh, kind of reformed, which that doesn't mean anything for most of you, but kind of church planning network, right? And there was like a whole brand, right? Like if you were part of this network, it was like, you've got to have a big old beard and wear flannel and you got to like drink craft beer and like smoke cigars. And if you don't do all of those things and you don't like read John Calvin, you know, his institutes as your devotional, then you're not even like, again, most of you don't even care about this, but the idea being that what happened was there was this cliquish nature that developed within a network that then saw anybody within this unit, that there was a specific almost religious level of appeasement to belong to the community and anybody that didn't live up to that, that they were a sub sort of church. This is exactly what's happening in the text. So Jesus sees this kind of nonsense. What does he say? Verse 39, but Jesus said, don't stop him 
Come on, guys. No one who does a mighty work and is able to do that in my name is soon afterward going to be speaking evil of me. And then he quotes from the, uh, the uh, Greek uh, philosopher Cicero, huge prominent. Everybody knows this, he says. The one who is not against us is for us. He says, truly, I tell you, whoever gives you even the smallest little act of gratitude and, and, and hospitality, a little cup of water, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. What does Jesus say here? My kingdom my community, my people is larger than who's following you. You need to widen your arrogant, jealous, tribal cliques. There are those working in my name and actually powerfully doing things that you cannot, who are not part of your little group of 12 dudes. You are not in competition with other Jesus followers. Again, Cicero, you are not, not against us, is for us. It is these, this is what Jesus is saying here. This talking of, you know, those who do powerful works in my name or giving you a cup of water because you belong to Christ. He is talking about followers of Jesus who are not a part of your in-group. And he says this cup of water that even the simplest act of care and service is rewarded among those who belong to Christ. And so to bring this in, as a community of humility, those of us who serve Jesus and follow him, the goal, what we are called to is not, as Kim Huat Tan says, acquiring a franchise. This Jesus thing is not about you setting up your local Starbucks and this is the one that we all go to now, your friend group or your tribal group. Rather, we have to abandon our conventional understandings of group boundaries, extending care and partnership beyond just our in-group. Jesus is, is setting, setting this, he's widening this tribal net here to something that's far more expansive than what you want it to be. It, in, it involves and includes those who belong to Jesus that you, that aren't a part of your in-group. And so Jesus calls for them to do the same. But Jesus isn't done, surprisingly. Verse 42, he says, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You see, this is a continuation. This is, we are not moving on to anything else. Some of your Bibles might have, I know like mine does, that we move into like another paragraph here. There's no paragraph breaks in, in the original Greek. And so sometimes that's, you know, people taking their best guess. It's informed. But the thing is, is we have to see that Jesus says in that what we just were, Right. He says, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup, you know, no means lose their reward. And then he says here, but whoever causes one of these little ones, he's, he's setting the two aside beside one another here. And so what, what Jesus is getting at here is his inclusion, his widening of the tribal nets to involve this uh, uh, anonymous exorcist does not validate a carte blanche approval of anybody who claims to come in his name. There is a tension Jesus is establishing here with his community of humility that it is both widely more inclusive than you allow it to be and yet more exclusive than you want it to be. 
So Jesus says specifically, yes, I, anybody who cares for does all these things. Yes, awesome. They're not going to lose their reward. But anybody who causes one of these little ones, and there's argument all day long of, of who's the little ones he's talking about. Based off what we've just read, the idea being it's, it's, it's little Christians. He's not talking about the kid from before. He is in, involved in that. But he's talking about Christians. Whoever causes one of my specifically young Christians who believe in me to sin, and again, this, we're getting into like language stuff here, but it's really helpful to understand this, is sin can be translated as to stumble or to fall away or to sin. And so I think we need that wide range of what he's talking about here to understand that we're not moving on from anything that he's just said. Jesus says, anyone who comes and causes specifically vulnerable Christians whether that's because they're new in their faith or, or they are young Christians, like young, actually like in age, like a child, or just Christians in general, to stumble, to fall away, or to be led into sin, to become disillusioned with me or to be pushed away from me, this is where then he gets, this is the, the judgment that I'm going to bring. And most of us have experienced something like this or, or know of friends like this. Friends who walked away from Jesus because of what a Christian did or said or how they behaved around them. Disillusioned to the faith now. Some of you are likewise disillusioned with Jesus or maybe some aspect of Jesus because of the teaching or living the, the way that either a pastor or some other Christian engaged with you either on the subject or on something else. I, over my years in ministry, have watched time and again, pastors that I've been close to, mentor figures who have disqualified themselves, the whole moral failure language have blown up their lives, either falling into sin or some kind of stupid false teaching, rejecting scripture and, and watching that their sin is not simply something they do, but has deep ramifications within the community. People walking away from the faith. I have close friends that because of one pastor and how he blew up his life and all of this stupidity that he did, it was not just that he caused himself to sin. I watched his close friends walked away the faith because that pastor was like a father figure to them. And so Jesus is having strong language for people who would cause that. And so the thing is, we read into this, the, the Jesus is talking about false teachers over there, you know, the heretics, those bad guys over there. That's true, but who's he talking to? It's John and the disciples. After what, what did they just do with the anonymous exorcist? They pushed him away. Disillusioned, fall away, causing, that's why I think the sin language is, is good, but we need more of that stumble when we read this. Jesus is calling out his disciples after they just cast this anonymous exorcist out, after they just caused him to stumble. So Jesus here is calling out the way we can call this is an arrogance of apathy. This sort of pride that gets all of its focus maybe on others and doesn't see the ramifications of its own stumble causing on them or on themselves. This kind of where I'm apathetic to the ways that, because I'm just, I'm just so, I'm just focused on myself and I'm, I, whatever I do, and I'm not even focused on how my sin has ramifications on others. And so Jesus there at Capernaum where, Historically, these giant millstones were made and then shipped all over the world. He points to this specific one that he calls a, a great mill. I mean, he's, they're in Capernaum where these are made, right? And so the idea being that he's here with the disciples, they're talking and literally over, you know, across the way, they can see a whole bunch of millstones and then they're right there on the sea. So he says, you know, hey, speaking of which, anybody that does that, you know, it'd be best put one of those around your neck and hop in the ocean. That's going to be the best case scenario for you when I come back. 
I even love, he gets to the size of them. He doesn't just say millstone. He says a great millstone, which in the, uh, the Greek, it's the word for, it's, 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 uh, uh, um, it's not great. It's not megas. It's the word for donkey. And, and so the idea being that there are like, there are people, like there's people millstones that you use to grind up wheat, right? And you make your bread. That's a, that's a, that's a, you know, millstone. A donkey millstone is one that's so big that a donkey has to pull it around. And so Jesus is saying a great, a huge, a giant, a donkey millstone. It is better to be put around your neck and for you to take a synchronized swim in the Sea of Galilee than for you to be awaiting my returning judgment for those. Again, remember, what is he talking about? Those who cause other Christians to fall away disillusion. This is strong language of Jesus. And again, he's not just talking about false teachers out there. He's dealing with those within his community, within the church. And so he continues in Mark 9. Jesus is not done. He's got hard words for us today. Mark 9, 43 through 48. Jesus says, so then, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, there's a lot here. Don't you wish you had my job? (laughs) This is a lot here. So what I found is the best way to understand what's going on here is just by asking three questions of the the text of this paragraph. And that kind of helps us fit everything together. Now, the first question is, what does Jesus mean by hand, foot, and eye? Now, maybe you've heard this expression before. Uh, Likely you've heard it from the Sermon on the Mount in the context where Jesus was talking about lust. And he says, if your eye, he refers to this idea of lust, causes you to sin, pull it out. And, and, and he, um, or if, if your hand causes you to sin, to cut it off. He doesn't mention the foot there. So some would say they would connect the hand, foot, and the eye of what Jesus is saying here. They connect it to the Sermon on the Mount. And they say, basically, in the same way that you need to be aware of um, little ones causing, or, or people causing little ones to stumble, you need to be aware of you causing yourself to stumble. It's a good case. But the problem is, is that Jesus isn't talking about, like it's, it'd be weird to bring in our, our Sermon on the Mount sexual teaching into, a, w- w- that would be so out of left field, right? Like, why would you, why is Jesus all of a sudden talking about hand, foot, and eye of body parts in the midst of a conversation around pride and humility? Now, after spending some time on this over this past week, this is what I have become, I'm like 98% sure of what's going on here is that Jesus in saying hand, foot, and eye is not responding to you and your individual body parts, the hand, the foot, and the eye. But rather what he is talking about is uh, the members of the body of his community. We find this metaphor used all the way through the scriptures. Even in 1 Corinthians, the hand doesn't say the eye, that we all are members of a body, of a community that is this sort of body form. And so this makes the most sense of what we've just been reading about. We've been reading about this community, this body, and what happens when pride begins to pull itself apart. And so by talking about the hand, the foot, and the eye here, I genuinely think that what Jesus is saying is the hand, the foot, and the eye is not your physical body part. It is members of the community. Jesus is saying, what do you do with a stumble causer in the church? 
One who in their arrogance of apathy is not acknowledging sin and they're causing little ones to fall away. And even in this case, causing you to stumble and sin and fall away. What do you do with them? So one of the reasons why this makes the most sense is one, what we just read about being cast into the sea. It's a sense of being, it's the same language of being thrown into the sea versus what he talks about here of your body parts being, then you being thrown into uh, hell, which we'll come back to in a moment. Another reason why, and this is just me giving my reasons before we then unpack this more, is uh, Matthew and his, re- he retells the story of Jesus. He, he is like thought for thought right here following Mark in his gospel. But then right after what we just read, In Matthew 18, Jesus says, if your brother or sister uh, sins against you, causes you to stumble, go tell them their fault between the two of you. If they listen, you've gained a brother. But if they do not listen, then take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If they refuse to listen to them, tell it then to the body, to the church. If they refuse to listen, even to the church, then let them be outside of the body. That is, it's the cut or torn out from the community. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth uh, shall be bound in heaven, loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. If two of you agree on this, I am with them. So I, I am like 100, like, like I said, 98, I'll say 98. I'm still open to, to being uh, told that I'm wrong, but I'm convinced that Jesus here is not talking just about you and your sin. He involves that within this for sure, but his focus is more on what do you do with the stumble causer, what we just read? What do you do with the sort of person who stumbles, it makes you stumble, is causing sin within the community? The hand, the foot, and the eye, though a body part, part of this body, something that you love and almost feel like you need, Jesus is saying, well, what does he say? Cut it off, tear it out. Now, this is obviously hyperbole. Uh, because sin, whether it's in the body or within the community, is not located in one particular person or even one body part. Me tearing out my eye isn't going to help me with, with anything. Jesus is using hyperbole here to talk about drastic measures to remove the thing that is causing the stumbling and the sin. So for you on a personal level, if we were reading this from, again, that individualistic thing, you know, this is, again, if you know, you've got, you know, issues with, you know, um, jealousy and you just find that it's constantly being brought up because as you go through your Instagram feed, the drastic measure is that you delete Instagram, right? Like that, that's a potential read of this or, you know, um, an addiction to pornography. And it's like, well, we're getting rid of the laptop and the phone. And like, we're setting up all these filters, right? Drastic measures. This is what it means to cut off the foot. Again, true. I think what Jesus is getting at here and talking about the stumble causer within a community is he's saying that, that like we just read from Matthew, the one who continues in unrepentance, the one who continues saying, I don't care. I have an, this, again, this arrogant apathy to what their sin is bringing in the community. Jesus says, you warn them and you warn them and you warn them and then you cut them off. You, it, they, they are torn out from the community. The idea being that, that it is better for a church community, for a body to enter into life together missing key pieces, but actually there than for over time, this infectious work of sin to bring down a whole community. We overly individualize ourselves and we don't think that someone's sin within the church impacts us. Jesus here, if we're reading this rightly, is saying that the body, we have deep connection to one another. And so the idea being is not only that you preserve the community, but also that the hope is for repentance is that by being torn away from life, that body part might be ready to receive and join back in and no longer shaped by their arrogant apathy. 
So again, like I said, what we're having here is this coupling with what we just read. Jesus is setting up this inclusion to those that are humble, but an exclusion against those that are proud. Jesus is embodying what the psalmist says that the Lord, he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But we're not done yet. Because Jesus says that the end all place where pride leads is where? To hell. Now, our English word hell is actually not rooted in Hebrew or in Greek, but actually it comes from uh, the place of the underworld in Norse mythology. And so we've used that language and then we've kind of rebuilt around it kind of um, our views of hell, good or bad. And so the thing is just to be aware that Jesus in saying this is not thinking about Dante's Inferno or Looney Tunes hell. That's not the language he uses here. Jesus uses in the Greek, it's this word Gehenna. It's the Greekification of the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was on the south side of the city of Jerusalem. It was a place where in Old Testament uh, history originally had been used as a place for child sacrifice to these other idols and gods. It was one of the places that the prophets regularly pointed to as a sign of God, why God is going to judge Israel. They were sacrificing their children to the gods. Finally, after having a, a good king that came up and outlawed this practice, he then turned that whole area into a giant garbage dump. You know, you've got carcasses, leftover carcasses. You know, you made the, 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 the broth or whatever, and you've used all the parts. You take the leftovers, you take the trash, you take the excrement out. With every, you, you bring everything out and it's out on the south side. And then there's these fires that, that would be lit that would be always be burning, consuming up all of the garbage and the trash. So there'd be kind of a stink smell. They'd be burning constantly, worms and decomposition, not a good place. By the time of Jesus, this dump site, which originally was rooted in human sin that had lit the fires to begin with, with their idolatry, became a metaphor for God's judgment. To, for God's judgment to be thrown into hell, the idea is, is thrown into the valley of Gehenna, this trash heap. And then Jesus pulls from this language of the worm and the fire at the end. There's the final verse in Isaiah, uh, who we're going to hang out with next week, where he sees this field where there are decomposing, smoldering bodies of God's enemies. Jesus, meek and mild, you know, our nonviolent Jesus here is setting before us. There are very real implications to where your pride takes you. This is where your pride leads, Jesus says, is you being thrown into the garbage dump of Jerusalem where the fire does not. It's, it's this metaphorical language. And so the problem is, is Jesus, we have to remember Jesus using metaphor here that it may not be literal worm and fire, but the reality is, is that whatever the judgment that awaits, the death and the destruction, for those of us that continue in our pride, it, it, it is worth receiving Jesus's perspective here as a warning. But again, the reminder here, just like we saw a moment ago with the millstone, is that Jesus is not talking about the Gentiles or, you know, the, the, you know, the tax cult. He's not talking about any of those, though there are plenty of verses about God's judgment. Who's Jesus using this strong language for? It's his disciples. He's saying, you guys don't have a leg, or you could say a hand or an eye up on anyone. You guys are so concerned with this anonymous exorcist out on the side that you are failing to see your own pride and how each of you are causing one another to stumble in your little debates over arrogance and pride. And it's causing the whole thing to fall apart. Again, this arrogance that you guys have is leading to this apathy, a lack of concern over your sin, whether in your own heart or within the community. 
And it's all motivated by this assumed privilege that you guys are good with God and you don't realize that it is leading to the garbage dump. It is literally dragging you to hell. And so Jesus is, is calling them out to be a community of humility that doesn't uh, arrogantly cast a blind eye at their own sin or the sin within the community, but humbly realizes that for us to make it into this kingdom, that it takes repentance. It takes a hard word from time to time to ourselves and to one another to receive that and to move forward. Once again, Jesus is, it's this balance that Jesus sets forward that we are inclusive radically to the humble, like the anonymous exorcist, but Jesus is so exclusive to pride and arrogance within his community. Mark 9, 49, Jesus comes and kind of brings this section to a close. And he says, for everyone looking at his disciples, all of you will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, this, this little first verse there in verse 49, salted with fire, is a link back to the um, Old Testament sacrifices that before you would offer up a sacrifice uh, to be burnt up as, uh, on the altar, that you would salt it. And so Jesus is, in a sense, saying what Paul says in Romans 12, that they are to offer their lives as a living sacrifice. I'm actually going to talk about this more in the Q&A today. But I want to focus on the back half of verse 50 to see that this idea of having salt is equal and paralleled with the idea of being at peace with one another, being at peace with one another. What does it take to be at peace with one another? What has been the reason for the absence of peace throughout this whole chapter? It has been pride and arrogance and ambition. And so Jesus says to have salt in yourselves is in the absence of pride, being at peace. Jesus is saying, my community of humility is the salt of the earth the preservative, the flavoring, the thing that is preserving this world from my community of humility is, the, is, is my, you guys are the salt of the earth here. But Jesus then remarks in verse 50 to go back. He says, man, but if you guys lose your humility, how, how do you regain that sort of thing when pride has worked itself at such an infectious level within a community? Here we understand Jesus is the reason for Jesus' hard words today all throughout is if, 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 if his community, if his 12, if they continue in this pride and in this arrogance and in this ambition, it is this whole thing is gonna be a lost cause from the start. Jesus is saying there is, the, I, 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 don't, I don't play around with this because my, this is my, this is my gift to the world after my resurrection is empowering my Holy Spirit within a people. And the way they will transform the world is not through their power and their privilege and their position, but through their humility and their service and their suffering. And if you guys don't get this right here and right now, the whole thing's gonna fall apart. So Jesus calls out what C.S. Lewis calls the chief sin is pride. Every sin C.S. Lewis wrote comes from pride. So the question is for us today. Likely seeing some of this pride within ourselves, this apathy, this arrogance, this ambition. How do we become a community of humility that can truly be the salt of the earth, that can be the people shaped and saved by Jesus? Well, we're going to jump over to chapter 10, verse 13, as we reflect on that. Mark 10, 13, a few days later, they just being the people, these people, this crowd was bringing children, these little kids to Jesus so that he might touch them and bless them. But the disciples, they begin to rebuke them. It's like, have you guys learned anything? That was days ago. 
But when Jesus saw this, he becomes indignant. No one, he, again, he's so frustrated. You guys aren't seeing it. He says to them, let these children come to me. Don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He took these kids up in his arms and he blesses them, laying hands on them. He's blessing them and praying over them. And so here we have a day, days later, the disciples are still missing it. This is, you know, it's frustrating or even humorous for us, but this is you and me on a daily basis. Jesus, you guys are not seeing the way of humility, the way of receiving the lowly, the powerless, the positionless. Those are the people I want to give time for. You're not seeing it. And so Jesus takes this child again up into his lap. Probably a different kid, but I like it to be funny if it's the same kid. Like, oh, I'm back here again. And Jesus pulls up this child and sets it in his lap and he looks at his disciples, this time not saying, this is who you serve. I've told you that. You guys should know better. He now says, this is who you need to be like. He says, the only way for you to receive my kingdom, my salvation, my life, my work is to receive all of it like this little kid. Humbly, no power, no status, few rights. We just talked about this a moment ago. The child is this signpost of the lowest in society. The one who is, is purely at a posture of dependence and reception from their parents and from the larger world. This is the cure for pride. Not in clenched fists and trying really hard to be humble because you can make yourself look humble that way. But the fact is, is that it will eat your heart from the inside out because you'll just become more proud than ever at how humble you appear. The cure for pride is not in clenched fist. The cure to pride is found in becoming like a child, in particular, a child of God. How so? Well, look at the life of Jesus. Let's look back over Mark's gospel, the past nine, cha 10 chapters now, goodness. The past year, what have we found with Jesus? We found Jesus' humility. We found his inclusion of the, of the outsider. We found his holiness, his teaching, his ability to care for the least of these, his ability to reject pride, his ability to reject the temptation for power, privilege, and ambition given to him by the enemy in the wilderness. All of Jesus' work, his ability to do this was sourced in God's word over him at his baptism. You are my beloved son, with you, I am well pleased. Jesus's identity as the son of God was able to minimize all of his concerns for praise and position or honor from others, or at least drastically relativize them. Ambition flew away, arrogant, like they, they don't, they can't be there when the creator God has called you child to know that you have his pleasure. This is the sort of thing that guided Jesus through, like I said, his temptation, through his crowds, and ultimately then through persecution, through his arrest, through his crucifixion, and through his death. This is my beloved son. No matter what the world says, no matter how the, the rabbis and the church and the Gentiles and the political leaders of the day, no matter what anybody else says about me, Jesus carried within his heart, I am the beloved son of God, and he is deeply pleased in me. This is what motivated him through it all, that enabled him to walk with a humility. And then it is through Jesus' faithfulness to humbly walking within that son of God identity that then through his death, that we are saved. That Jesus in his death, 
as the Apostles' Creed put it, that he descended into hell, that in the metaphorical language of Jesus, that he went in, down into Gehenna so that we might receive the kingdom of heaven. He was taken out of the city into the garbage dump. They're crucified. They're not crucified in Gehenna, but sorry, another place, but the, the metaphor continues so that we might remain within the city of life. Jesus took what we deserved for our pride, us being thrown into hell, us being thrown into the sea with the millstone, that in a sense, all of this was placed on Jesus so that we might receive what he possessed by his humility. What the apostle Paul calls the adopted status as a child of God. Through the work of Jesus, of him taking what, what we deserve so that we might have what he deserved, that we now hear what was said over him at his baptism. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. and you, I am well pleased. This is the cure for pride. This saving and shaping statement that you are a child of the creator God, that is the apostle Paul and Jesus taught us to refer to him as this Abba, this, this Aramaic, this father, Papa, daddy language, that this is my relationship to the creator God. And that he not only is my dad at a distance, but beloved and pleased with me. This is the cure to pride. If you were to wake up or like Jesus to hear this over your life and in the walk in light of it, what, what ambition of position, what position could offer a greater honor and love lavished over you? All the honor that you'll ever need is right here. You would be content in every circumstance. You would be able to serve all, not worried about working up some ladder, but able to serve even the least because you though we're the least, we're loved and received as a child of God. Within the pride of tribe, it is overturned by this statement because all the love that I will ever need has been found within the community of the triune God. And so now I see all followers of Jesus as brothers and sisters, not competition or outsiders. And the arrogance of apathy is, is destroyed within this because what sin, what stumbling block, what thing, what anything could be worth losing this status over? And God on earth, why would I ever be content with causing a stumbling away for someone else who had heard this? That I would cause them based off my behavior or my actions to walk away from the God who lavishes this sort of love. You see, this is the cure to pride. This is what was not present within the disciples is they still saw the God of Israel like their boss who they served while they worked up the corporate ladder. They saw him like a tribal chieftain who they had to guard the territorial lines with. Or they saw him as their buddy, buddy because they were disciples of Jesus that now they could really cast a blind eye to their sin because they were on the inside group. All of those are turned over when we hear that we are the beloved child of God and we receive a posture of humility and service and love. But it's not until we're ready to enter into that posture, to come down to the posture of a child that we can actually be exalted into having that sort of shaping life. As Jesus says in Luke 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles themselves will be exalted. Let's pray.